Hi there, this is Kent Roundy, a USH med student with a group of three students. And uh, a topic that is atypical. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's do some introductions. Um, I'm going to start with you two, and then ultimately with Angelo. And Angelo, because this is uh, your podcast, I'll have a little bit uh, deeper introduction with you, okay? So I'm Brett Dotson, and uh, I'm a student, uh, third-year medical student at Rocky Vista University. I'm Cam Meekum. I'm a fourth-year medical student at Rocky Vista. And I'm Angelo Garcia. I'm also a third-year at Rocky Vista University. All right, so Angelo, um, first of all, this is your first rotation. Uh-huh, yes. Welcome to third-year clerkships. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> it was a pleasure having you here. And you're almost done with the rotation. Your rotation ends in the next few days. Yes. How was it that uh, how was it that you had psychiatry as your first rotation? Well, um, I have Kay as a um, coordinator, so she told me that I was assigned to the psychiatry rotation. But first of all, I um, had to push my rotations back a month because COVID kind of canceled my um, Comlex Level One and USMLE Step One. So then I also had some kind of family emergencies as well, so those had to be pushed back again. And then um, I was able to finally finalize some dates, and both of them kind of wound up in this rotation. So that was kind of a new experience. <laughs> yeah, being buried by a shelf exam and two board exams yes. is kind of a new experience. And I usually don't ask this unless it's really an awkward time, but uh, do you have an idea of where you're headed with medicine yet? Um, not really. I just remember, but I do remember taking some immunology-related classes in med school, and um, I did research in BYU with cells and with animal lines, so I was very interested in pursuing sort of an infectious disease or immunology, maybe even an oncology track, so mm -hmm. that's what I'm interested in right now, or currently. Cell-cell signaling, I think, is one of the most fascinating parts of medicine, and, mm -hmm. and certainly one of, the, one of the directions that I find myself reading more easily right just yes. uh, it's, it's like oh wow wait a minute it's like you know I have this image of, of you know pulling levers and pushing buttons mm -hmm. and and having you know 16 different things lined up perfectly so that you can get the outcome you want as being the way that uh, genomic medicine will go eventually and I think part of genomic genomic medicine is probably ultimately going to be proteomic medicine and individualized proteomic medicine if I'm on the right track and and I'm pretty excited about where that's going. I, I, I think that you're in an awesome direction. Love, 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 love that. Yeah, and psychiatry seems like it's a very, you know, science-based, drug-related, cell-cell, you know, kind of um, specialty, so. There is definitely a home for somebody that's interested in that here. And, and I think even a home for somebody that's fascinated in other aspects of how we interact with our patients, mm -hmm. uh, the communication, motivational interviewing, and so forth. But I, I'd like to think that an important part of being a psychiatrist is paying attention to those intracellular and perhaps even intercellular mm -hmm. kinds yes. of interactions mm -hmm. and uh, seeing where those go. So you came up with Atypical Depression as, as your podcast. Tell me how you came to that. So um, one day while studying for the drugs of psychiatry or that will be tested on the boards and on our shelves and um, even for prep on step one and the complex level one, I was reading a sketchy video on <laughs> the monoamine oxidase inhibitors. And um, he did mention, like it was, I think it was called Chateau Tyramine, uh, your 
it, it was a very atypical chateau. And so that's where I remember hearing the first, or first time hearing um, the word atypical depression. And so I was kind of curious on how um, they were going to introduce that topic, but all that was mentioned was that the monoamine oxidase inhibitors can be useful in the treatment of atypical depression, and there was no explanation of what it was or how it could be helpful. <laughs> so that kind of that kind of bothered me. So I think that's why I chose this topic. So. I have to admit, I was kind of bothered as well. Mm -hmm. um, not. <laughs> I better back up there. <clears throat> as I read through the papers you sent me, I became curious, is maybe a better way of saying it, mm -hmm. and um, chased the phrase atypical down the rabbit hole. Yes. I'm wondering if you did the same thing. Oh, I did the same thing uh, for a couple of hours. And <laughs> It was a pretty time-consuming process. Very interesting, but also very muddy and, yeah. So tell me, I, I think I know where the phrase atypical comes from, and I'm going to tell a story. You tell me mm -hmm. if I've got this story right, wrong, something else, add details. And, and of course, guys, jump in. Uh, Rhett, Cam, um, any, anywhere you guys see me wandering astray. <laughs> I'm going to go back to... 1870 and there is a chemist and I forget his name now I think I wrote it down somewhere but I lost it there was a chemist working with hydrazine a molecule that he made a number of compounds from and apparently some of these were semi-forgotten and then essentially remembered later or maybe uh, inadvertently played with later and we came up with something called isoniazid from these compounds. And I think we're all familiar with isoniazid. Um, perhaps the first antibiotic. Perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> perhaps. Yes. And isoniazid treats... Tuberculosis. Tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. And in uh, 1959... Nope, I'm sorry. Before that, before 1959... Um, in 1948, I think. 1948, I think you are correct. Somebody noticed that people treated for tuberculosis with a an isoniazid-like molecule um, called isoniaprin, isopriazid, isoniazid. Am I close yet? <laughs> it sounds very familiar, but I can't. Ipronizid. Ipronizid. Uh, people treating tuberculosis with ipronizid, and I think also isoniazid. I couldn't confirm this through multiple sources. Noticed that their patients were just a whole lot happier, and said, "Hey, maybe we have something here." And apparently, ipronizid was more effective than isoniazid in causing that lifting of mood. And so uh, people started using this for treating difficult to treat depression. We're going to notice that theme tomorrow, uh, Rhett, when we talk about use of lysergic acid, also known as LSD, in, in uh, treatment of some psychiatric conditions. If we're going to use something that's a little bit out of bounds, we're going to use on people who desperately need it. Absolutely. 
And so um, there's a clinic at St. Thomas's Hospital in London run uh, who apparently had a number of psychiatrists that were very helpful in this. And psychiatrist is not the right name for uh, these people running the clinic. It was a clinic of psychological medicine and the names used are not the same names that I think we use now. So in, eight, in 1959, uh, West and Daly published an article talking about use of Ipronizid in treatment of depression. And they said, you know, we've tried this on about 500 people now. And we've put together a case series of 100 people who responded and didn't respond. And I'm not sure if they did it in sequence. I'm not sure why they picked 101 out of the 500. It wasn't clear to me. They said, hey, we were going to do a randomized control trial, but our patients with Ipronizid, they flush, and it's just too easy for us to figure out uh, who's on the medication, who's not on the medication. And so here's a list of the patients who we tried on the medication and uh, who recovered, and the characteristics of the people who recovered and the characteristics of the people who didn't recover. And we think there's something different about this group of people that have depression. So we, we think there may, might be subtypes of depression. And even though in this list they talked about things like family history, worse in the morning, worse in the evening, self-reproach, early waking, difficulty falling asleep, um, whether or not somebody had gotten better or worse with ECT, there were a couple of these signs that were out there. They said, we think the difference is primarily that patients with depression who have this atypical depression, and they put this in quotes in the middle of this article. I don't know if you saw the same thing in the British uh, Medical Journal, British Medical Journal, or British Journal of Psychiatry. Boy, now I'm... Uh, yeah, there's a lot of names to this. Now I, and now I can't remember which journal they put this in, So, but they use these parentheses, or these uh, quotation marks, rather, around atypical. These people that have atypical depression, they really seem to be... Uh, people who are particularly prone to interpersonal injury, interpersonal insult, interpersonal emotional, you know, kind of just not, not respond to that well. And out of this comes a category of the DSM-4, almost what? Almost 80. 40 years later? Yeah. 50 years later? Something like that? 1994, I think, is when it was, when it came out with the DSM-4, if I'm not mistaken. So 1994 was when they came out with the DSM-4, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, about 40, 50 years later. And we now have a category. Mm -hmm. The atypical depression. Um, so I, or atypical features of depression. So I have the DSM-5 opened up um, where I can tell you what it exactly says. So. Here, um, they're talking about specifiers that um, feature predominantly during the majority of days of the current or most recent major depressive episode or persistent depressive disorder. And a major thing that you will find on the boards or on your shelf exams it, um, about atypical depression or the major feature is mood reactivity. In other words, does the mood brighten in response to a certain positive stimulus or event? So if I tell Cam, and Cam, if Cam has atypical depression, I'm going to back up just a little bit. First of all, Rhett, you've listened to some of our podcasts, I think, in the past. I have a number of them. 
And have you listened to any of the podcasts about depression? Um, treatment of depression, yeah. And there was one thing right off the bat we did, and that was Siggy Caps, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. For so depression, the diagnosis of depression, nine criteria. Siggy Caps, name them for me. Siggy Caps. So sleep changes, interest, anhedonia. Um, uh, G is guilt. Um, caps concentration, appetite. Um, there's a P, and then there's an S, which is suicidality. So psychomotor slowing. Psychomotor slowing. And I think you skipped E. I skipped E as well. Energy. Yeah. Lower energy. Yep. So SIG E caps, and E-caps. just as a quick reminder, SIG, the prescription for depression, SIG, is E caps, energy capsules, SIG E caps, right? Yes. That's where that comes from. Oh. Although it's a very, I don't know why, it's so memorable, right? Mm-hmm. And very few people know that the mnemonic is yeah. the prescription for depression is energy caps, SIG. Oh. E-caps. And uh, so I want to talk about two other things very, very quickly before we go. So so you mentioned the A criteria in atypical depression. That is, if Cam's depressed and he knows his grandkids are coming over to visit, he lights up like a Christmas tree and is able to be happy for a little while. But then as soon as the grandkids are gone and he's alone in his house again, it's like the lights are on and mm-hmm. nobody is home because there is just he just doesn't feel it right that's, that's that emotional reactivity yes. does that sound right that's a perfect example so so there are a couple of things that um, Dally and West talked about or West and Dally and they talked about what was called endogenous depression in other words not this atypical stuff that we think is responding to iproniazid so and that is that um, endogenous depression tends to have reduced sleep mm-hmm. and reduced a reduction in appetite. in appetite. Yes. Okay. And then we call these um, these these switches in symptoms to increased mm-hmm. hunger and increased sleep. There's a name for those, and that name is escaping me. Do any of you guys remember the name? I'm catching up here. I thought that's what atypical depression was. There, there's also another name for it, I think, okay. um, where they talk about... Um, like an inversion of those symptoms. It's reverse symptoms. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Um, and I can't remember... Let's see. There's a, there's a name for it, non-endogenous... So, so maybe that's it. So these are con- considered to be the endogenous version of depression where those uh, sleep and appetite symptoms are less. Sleep goes down, appetite goes down. Mm-hmm. And then in a typical depression, those things tend to go up. Yes. Where the appetite is higher and the the sleep, sleep. is more, or the fatigue is greater. Yeah, it, it, yeah, they do mention there's hypersomnia that in, can include extended periods of nighttime sleep or napping totally more than 10 hours a day. So that's pretty substantial compared to the your typical depression with your loss of sleep. So you just read one of, so there's now, we talked about the first, you have to have reactivity. Mm -hmm. And then you have to have two of the following. Yes. And one of those is? A significant weight gain or increase in appetite, hypersomnia. That's the second one. So so the first one is weight and appetite. The second one is hypersomnia. The third one is? Leaden paralysis, which is the heavy feeling that you can get in your arms or legs, which makes it difficult to move. 
And that might be similar to fatigue depending on who you read, right? Mm -hmm. And then the fourth criteria is? Um, it's a pretty different one. I've never heard of this before, but it's a long-standing pattern of interpersonal rejection sensitivity. So I talked about this when I read about Dali and West. They mm -hmm. talked about that feeling of interpersonal rejection being critical, not a lifetime standard like the DSM-5 does, but they said more that it was a symptom of depression, that you're very sensitive to this, that it just crushes you if somebody doesn't, you know, on some level you feel rejected yes. um, by, by somebody. And then the C criteria, or the, the last uh, kind of grouping that you have to pay mm -hmm. attention to is? That um, these criteria are not meant for the melancholic features of depression or, or depression with catatonia. You, the article that we read most of, I think, we all read it, was the Logico article. This was out of Poland. And this, this was a very broad description of, of the debate around refining what I think West and Dally really wanted us to do was, was, hey, let's look for the biological differences in depression so that we can find better treatments, right? Mm -hmm. and, and they referenced the National Epidemiological Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions. And it seems like we've seen this somewhere before. And I can't remember uh, which podcast this, this came up on. But this study was a cross-section of 43,000 people. And Carlos Blanco... Uh, led this, the, or wrote, was the lead author on this paper, and they had some criteria that I, that they said spoke to the diagnosis of atypical depression. And I don't think you sent me this article, Angelo, no. but it was one of the rabbit holes I went down because I found mm -hmm. this such an interesting topic. So, so they actually said, okay, anybody that gained two pounds a week during a depressive episode or 10 pounds total during a depressive episode met the hyperphagia criteria and they said anybody that slept more than usual for more than two weeks or two weeks or more during their depressive episode met the hypersomnia criteria and so if if somebody met either one of those even though that's not all four of the criteria they said yeah we're going to say that they met criteria for atypical depression and they actually talked about risk factors for atypical depression. And these seem to be risk factors that are kind of widely you know, cited. Tell me about risk factors for atypical depression. If I see somebody that has depression and I'm just not sure if it's a, you know, I'm, and I'm thinking about this bigger clinical picture, who might have those, who might I be thinking of as the prototypical atypically depressed person? Well, and I think in um, that study they mentioned that females were very likely to suffer or to experience atypical depression. Yes, yes. that's uh, one of the one things of I saw. And anything else that you saw either in the DSM-5 or anywhere else that you read that talked about risk factors? Um, I did remember that, but I can't pinpoint the exact place I had that information from. So I, I had to write it down uh -huh. so that I could uh, uh, be able to have a conversation and keep up with you on this. So um, what they said is increased lifetime psychiatric comorbidity, increased alcohol and drug misuse, increased risk of specific phobia, social anxiety, compared to people who were uh, simply typically depressed 
and increased personality disorders except antisocial personality disorder. And I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. um, increased episode severity, increased family history of depression, bipolar one, and increased family history of suicide attempts, and more likely to seek treatment compared to people with the typical depressive episodes, which I thought was all very interesting. And, and of note, in a, in a setting where a lot of our research is not um, descriptive of our population, their report was that they said, and I'm quoting, blacks, comma, Hispanics, comma, young adults, and now I'm out of the quotes for a moment, were, quote, oversampled, end quote, and that they had to make adjustments for that, which is interesting. Nice to have some data where we're sampling everybody uh, without undersampling our minority populations. Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of know who this is. We kind of know how this came about. What else is important about um, atypical depression? Well, um, in some instances, like in Sketchy, for example, that I previously mentioned, they did say MAOI, or um, monoamine, ac monoamine oxidase inhibitors, could be useful in the treatment of depression or of atypical depression, and so could TCAs or the tricyclic antidepressants as well, but they weren't usually used first line. In fact, if I bring up the um, first aid for psychiatry clerkships, I think I have it here, that said, and it says that um, MAOIs were considered particularly useful in the treatment of atypical depression. However, SSRIs remain the first line treatment for major major depressive episodes with atypical features. So that was pretty um, amazing, or uh, not amazing, but um, pretty interesting. I think you're saying interesting because this story is not so clear when yeah. you start looking at the studies. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to 1850, I'm sorry, 1959 again, Weston Daly. They're using ipronizid, which is a non-selective, irreversible monoamine oxidase inhibitor. It also happens to be hepatotoxic. So there's this uh, fairly high rate of people who have jaundice, and about a fifth of those people that become jaundiced, if I remember the story correctly, end up having liver failure and die maybe. Um, I, I, I may have those numbers off a little bit. In other words, maybe only some portion has liver failure, and then one-fifth of those that have liver, liver problems end up dying. But uh, enough, enough toxic toxic mm -hmm. enough that uh, Daly and West are saying to the world, hey, we don't want to just use this medication with everybody. It's hard to use. It has some drawbacks. So if there are drawbacks, we need to figure out who has the best fit for this medication. Yeah. And I think out of this data from 1959, the lore started, monoamine oxidase inhibitors are the treatment for atypical depression. Okay. But it's not just lore because when those monoamine oxidase inhibitors that were safer, and by safer I mean still had the problems with aged uh, foods. And, and the tyramine-containing compounds like the aged meat, aged cheeses, aged wine, aged beer. Yeah. By the way, these are high-yield types mm -hmm. of principles mm -hmm. for the shelf exam. Yeah. Right? Yes, they and are. Allow me to interrupt really quick. I feel like even though atypical depression isn't quite majorly tested on the boards, it is related to different subsets of drugs like the monoamine oxidase inhibitors and TCAs, which will be tested heavily on the boards, especially their toxic side effects on the body or like with the tyramine-containing compounds. 
yes. if you eat the if you ingest those and the hypersensitivity or hypertension reaction. Absolutely. So I think that's an important point, and where where I was heading dovetails very nice with that, in that studies afterwards compared not SSRIs, but TCAs to monoamine oxidase inhibitors. And there does seem to be a fair amount of data saying that monoamine oxidase inhibitors are more effective than TCAs at treating atypical depression. Yes, I was also reading that data as well, which is pretty interesting since um, that I wasn't sure if that data was more correlated with how well patients adhere to the meds because as we all know, the TCAs have a lot more um, different and adverse side effects than the monoamine oxidase inhibitors, but they're both pretty, um, they're both drugs that are pretty not friendly. They're more difficult to use. They're mm -hmm. clearly not used as, as commonly as the SSRIs or the SNRIs. Um, so, so there does seem to be this clear advantage, but we also read an article, uh, let's see, what was that article? Um, It was the iSpot study, mm. right? The, there's a, a group, the, what does iSpot stand for? Anybody have that on the tip of their tongue, the tip of their phone, tip of their brain? Yes, <clears throat> sorry, I've got it right here. Just looking for the... This is the most compelling part of the podcast, <laughs> oh dead airtime. So, so I'm going to just kind of summarize what I understood from the iSpot study, unless you would prefer to do that, Angelo. Um, okay, yeah, I can do that. So, well, first of all, this the study objective, or the objectives for this study, was to determine the proportion of, of individuals who met different, sub or who fell into different categories of depression, whether that be atypical, the melancholic, if I'm not mistaken, and the anxious depressive subtypes. So the atypical, mm -hmm. so, so those three subtypes of depression, the combination of those subtypes of depression and yes. the people that didn't have any of the above for a total of eight categories, if I remember correctly. Yes. Quite a few people in this study? Yeah, there was, I think, about an N of 1,008. So these are a lot bigger than a lot of the other studies, a lot of the studies that we'll be talking about tomorrow with uh, unusual treatments for PTSD. This, these are yeah. big studies, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, with these eight categories and three treatment choices, sertraline, escitalopram, e if that's escitalopram, escitalopram, which is the S antihumor of citalopram. They divided the S and the L and antihumors out, or the S and the R. R, R, R. 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 that's yeah. what it is, R. S and R. By the way, in case any uh, listeners were still hanging, it was the uh, international. Um, no more death here, Tom. International uh, study to predict optimized treatment in depression. I spot D. I spot D. I spot D. Optimized treatment in depression, and and this seems to be a study somewhat like the uh, the step trial out of Texas that we referenced when we talked about depression mm -hmm. with. Um, with uh, Brandon and Natalie, yeah. So uh, iSpot said, all right, we've got the three treatments, which is the escitalopram, sertraline, and extended release venlafaxine, and we find no difference between the types of depression. And their responsiveness to drugs as well. Um, to these three drugs. To these three drugs, yes. Um, I found it very interesting because 
I mean, I thought they were. I thought there was going to be a difference. First of all, when and when reading this study or when reading the abstract of the study, but um, that was a different um, thing, or that was a different um, outcome than expected. And another outcome that I, or another thing that I was kind of um, unsure of why they didn't test would be the application of maybe a TCA or an MAOI to that study. I think that kind of could have more sussed out what um, Maybe the, the differences was in, and yeah. our differences was were between the drugs. So I, I do think that there's still. So they said, hey, amongst all the, the uh, amongst all of these types of depression, if you give them either an SSRI or this extended release venlafaxine SNRI, just no difference in outcomes, mm -hmm. right? But we have data that says if you treat patients with atypical depression with an SNRI, I'm sorry, with a with an MAOI versus a TCA, there's a better outcome with the MAOIs, and that seemed to be consistently reproduced, yeah. right? I wasn't sure I understood how you come to the conclusion that it doesn't matter what you treat a depression with, because I didn't see a head-to-head -head comparison between MAOIs and SSRIs in atypical depression. I just saw that SSRIs treat all types of depression equally. Mm -hmm. I think it also, this as I was kind of reviewing this information and, and looking at that article specifically, it begs the question of, is it incumbent upon the healthcare worker then to be able to deduce whether someone has atypical depression or MDD with atypical features or MDD? I think maybe what they were working, at least it, the question in my mind is, were you just trying to see if you could if, if you could just notice someone that has depression and blanket treatment them with some SSRI or SNRI and would that help to cut out the difficulty in weighing what's in DSM-5 uh, versus you know SIGI caps which you know which I think as third year and fourth year medical students it becomes a little bit easier to be able to, you know, to nail down those typical uh, features of depression. I think that's very, very reasonable, by the way. I think the idea that, hey, if we can identify depression and treat it with an SSRI, and then if we have resistant or treatment-resistant depression, perhaps we ask about the differences in types of depression, yeah. and perhaps that guides us towards a monoamine oxidase inhibitor um, more quickly. Of course, if you go back to the STEPT treatment, uh, from um, what we talked about with, with Brandon, Brandon and Natalie, and Natalie yeah. then I think that would still be a third or a fourth line treatment. And we don't have to figure out if somebody has an atypical or a melancholic depression. And, and so that, that just to me as maybe a, a, a medical student, as someone who's you know hoping to be uh, a good a healthcare provider, maybe it's incumbent upon me to sharpen my you know, my edge a little bit so that I can tell the difference between those two if that's a patient population that I'm working with so that I can cut out kind of the, you know, the interim. Instead of giving multiple medications, I can help facilitate a, a more focused regimen for them. Anyway, just, just a thought. I think that's a very reasonable thought. And I, I think if we're talking about step to treatment, really what you want to do is have a first line that's pretty fairly effective exactly. and a second line that's fairly yeah. effective. And, and I think this strategy is probably fairly reasonable. I think also one of the things that I read was that this diagnosis is not as stable as we would think it is, mm -hmm. right? This is a diagnosis that um, maybe if you work with somebody, they may appear to have um, 
atypical depression at one presentation and then maybe non-atypical, non-melancholic depression at the next presentation. And so I think it makes more sense in that setting. I think the other the other reason why I liked the study, and again, I, I would have liked to have seen yeah. an SSRI versus a, a monoamine oxidase inhibitor and maybe a couple of studies that you know give us a better picture over time. Um, but the, the thing that I noticed was that I had a tough time wrapping my head around biological distinctions between these, these depressive subtypes. Angelo, you shared the Lojko article with me, uh, lead author, and this came out of Poland. Did you leave this article having said to yourself, gosh, I feel like there's a pathway down which we're going to find the symptoms of atypical depression through a biomarker? Um, I just felt like there were so many biomarkers brought up that I, I wasn't sure of which one um, to focus on, but I feel like that's an area of future research that um, will, need to be, will need to be elucidated upon in the coming future or in the coming times. So I, I think that's where I was left as well. So mm -hmm. if I think back to the West and Daly article, they said, hey, maybe there's some symptoms here that we're seeing that are different. And the response to Ipraniazid is different enough compared to other things that we're trying, including ECT, that gosh, maybe, maybe there's a biological picture here. And then the Logico article said, boy, there's a lot of discussion about this. There's an HPA axis disruption story and maybe hypocortisolemia, yes. cortisolemia is mm -hmm. an explanation, yeah. but maybe not. Yeah, because they did find, and there was many other studies that showed that hypercortisolism or increased cortisol levels in the blood were indicative or could lead to, I guess, or were associated with is the more appropriate term, with um, the typical set of depression, you know, the sicky cat depression mm. or melancholic features, I guess, is what they use. But it felt like that flipped at times, mm -hmm. too. So there might be times when the cortisol was the cause of the symptom and not necessarily that you can pick out the type of depression, a durable, stable kind of depression. Um, but again, I thought the, the data that uh, Logico presented was the story is far from understood and maybe cortisol is part of the story and maybe not. Mm. And then the other thing they talked about was inflammatory markers, also not well, like seems like there's a hint of it in one study and then the next study says no probably not yes okay that's that's yeah, what i, I thought uh, i mean they did come across those as well but they weren't very um strong indicators of if you had a high level of crp or il i don't remember il6 six? Yes. tnf tnf mm -hmm. alpha that maybe these are increased in uh, atypical depression yes but then another study says, well, I don't, I don't know, compared to other depressions, not, mm -hmm. not across the board, but just compared to other depressions, they might be higher, and then maybe not because, I don't know, melancholic depression might have another picture, and it seems like it muddied the story that I thought I understood with the three first inflammatory markers. Leptin was another item mentioned, people that have increased uh, eating, increased mm -hmm. appetite, seem to have increased leptin levels, but I don't know that we were able to understand that increased leptin levels were, you know, what, where they fit in the story. Although they did say that that increased leptin level wasn't just associated with increased eating, which makes some sort of sense, but also associated with that leaden paralysis, that feeling of heavy limbs and fatigue. Mm -hmm. 
spect scans, uh, also data there. I think that's yeah. about where I gave up and said, <laughs> it, it, it just felt like it's it's not a clear picture yet. There's not a tie between where leptin might be uh, increased either through an inflammatory pathway or something happening in the brain, mm -hmm. or maybe the HPA axis could explain, you know, two or three steps. It just felt like we just don't have a picture yet. Yes, and what I was thinking of, I mean, I don't know if they mentioned it in um, the end of the article by Lojka, if I'm pronouncing that right, probably not, but um, it kind of, this, all of these, you know, biological mechanisms or um, kind of, to me, pointed to the fact that maybe atypical depression is kind of a multifactorial process, disease process, and so until we uh, you know, pour more resources or more time into further elucidating each of these mechanisms, we won't know the whole story completely. Maybe not just multifactorial, but maybe maybe um, what one author I came across as I read mentioned, maybe this is like a final common pathway. A lot of different types of depression in the brain lead to this kind of a presentation and this kind of a presentation could be caused by a myriad of independent things or mm -hmm. groups of independent things. So I like that idea as well. I think one other thing worth pointing out, oh, by the way, reversed vegetative symptoms is a phrase that I saw used quite often. Yes. So vegetative symptoms of depression, if I understood this correctly, and I've heard this thrown around a lot, but by the time I made it to medical school and to residency, this was not language I remember hearing. Probably was, I had amazing teachers, but it felt like as I came into psychiatry, SSRIs seemed to make the question less important. Sort of like we talked about with the ice spot mm -hmm. depression studies. Um, so vegetative symptoms are the sleep and appetite symptoms and reversed or lack of sleep, lack of appetite are vegetative symptoms. And to me that speaks to the idea of energia, right? Just not a lot of oomph to go do it. Mm -hmm. And the reverse, reversed vegetative symptoms are the atypical symptoms of increased appetite, increased sleep, hypersomnia. Yeah. Melancholic depression, I think is worth pointing out in the context of atypical depression. Uh, anybody have that criteria off the top of their head? I know I don't, so I wrote it down. Um, and, and just to be clear, when we're talking about atypical depression, different research groups like the Columbia researchers talked about chronic, mild, not melancholic depression um, with reactivity. The New South Wales group talked about chronic, mild, non-endogenous, unipolar with anxiety symptoms being greater than mood symptoms. The University of Pittsburgh group said, or, uh, said that depressive state, it's the depressive state of bipolar disorder and that's why it stands out. And so there's these questions about whether atypical depression is part of a bipolar disorder mm -hmm. spectrum. All sorts of stuff that research groups are trying to even define atypical depression before studying it. Does that sound about right? Yes, I do remember reading the, the high, or uh, reading multiple articles, at least one or two, about there being a strong correlation or um, similarity between bipolar and bipolar disease and uh, atypical depression. So also something that seemed to be, um, I, I don't know that the word is controversial, but not, there's not agreement on this in the scientific literature. There's questions asked about it. There seems to be some sort of sign that it might be present, but it's not a, it's not yet a convincing kind of 
story, so to speak. Yes. Does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds exactly entirely right. So melancholic depression um, also has a couple of requirements, sort of like our atypical depression. The first requirement is that you have to have either loss of pleasure or the lack of re- reactivity. Mm-hmm. In a way, I feel like melancholic depression and atypical depression are sort of like, here's the two types of depression. I, I know there's more subtypes. We'll probably get into this another time. There's depression with uh, anxious distress, uh, um, with mixed features, mm-hmm. you know, there's Psychotic more here. features as well, catatonia and peripartum. There's a lot of different categories. Specifier, specifier, yeah, specifying, yeah. specifier categories. But in a way it feels like there's this division in depression that's either you have melancholic depression or you have atypical depression mm-hmm. and you can't have both. And I'm not sure that the epidemiology of that has been well established but the criteria have set it that way. Does that sound right? Yes, they do. Or it has, I mean, it's even, um, the specifiers for melancholic and atypical are even noted in the DSM-5, and it seems to be very specific on what Dr. Roundy just said when he was defining the melancholic features. I kind of think that one of the take-home points of this is that sometimes my students think about depression, and they say, well, if you're depressed, you can't feel any happiness. Some patients with depression don't feel any pleasure in activities, but not every patient with depression is uh, fully devoid of pleasure, right? And I think, that's, I think that's almost the same thing as reactivity. You can feel down, but your mood can come up for moments. Things do feel good. Mm-hmm. And, and perhaps that speaks to one of the treatments of depression, which is the behavioral um, activation treatments, right? Go do stuff that feels good to mm-hmm. feel good. Okay. I'll go do stuff that feels good to feel good. As hard as it is when somebody is depressed, right? Exactly. Cam, I think you're going to jump in with something there. You know, I was I was just kind of thinking about this conversation so far. And <clears throat> and uh, as we had mentioned before, how kind of difficult it can be to uh, definitiv- definitively, uh, you know, as, as Angelo was saying, suss out the details between both of these or all of these forms of depression. I think, as I was sitting here thinking about that, I I think one really high-yield point is this will be critical when you come up to those distractors in your questions where you have maybe a bit of an ambiguous stem and they try to distract you in the different answer choices with atypical depression or depression, uh, melancholic depression or MDD. I think being able to recognize what these are, at least with even some taglines, even if it's not the correct answer or the right answer, you can help to kind of cross that off your list and get down to the correct answer by uh, having at least some name recognition behind it too. Makes sense to me. The B category, so the first category, the A category, and I think it's A and B. Yes. The A category mm-hmm. is loss of pleasure, loss of reactivity, emotional reactivity. Mm-hmm. And then the B ca- uh, category, you have to have three or more of these. And we've been talking about these symptoms the whole time, mm-hmm. just in different ways, right, in terms of atypical. What are those three, uh, um, or what are the B category that you have to have three of? So there's a distinct quality of depressed mood characterized by profound despondency, despair, and or moroseness, or by so-called empty mood. 
The second is depression that is regularly worse in the morning. Third, um, early morning awakening, at least two hours before usual awakening. Um, marked psychomotor agitation or retardation. Significant anorexia or weight loss and excessive or inappropriate guilt. So again, these are all things that, as I read the Daly article, the Weston Daly article, it's sort of like there was this uh, table, and I think you looked at the same article if you went back into the Daly and West article, and as you read through this article and they talk about what they're seeing in this case series, that's the list of symptoms that, that they commented on, right? These, this is almost preserved from... 1958, one of our fundamental understandings of how we think about depression, right or wrong, this led to this really, really kind of you know, 45 minutes so far podcast <laughs> about, hey, what if there's a difference in depression? And the answer is, at this point, monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Yeah. It's a relationship that somebody found way back when. Um, by the way, sometimes it's interesting that sometimes our associations that we see can be, um, they, they seem so strong to us and yet the data doesn't support that long-term view. There was a sentence in, I, I do think it was the Logico article, um, where they said that there just wasn't interest in doing research for the use of ECT on atypical depression until a few years ago. And that probably came out of this, this um, case series where they said, hey, people that got worse with ECT did better with monoamine oxidase inhibitors. But that doesn't necessarily mean that, I mean, there, there, this number of people that actually got worse with ECT was a very small number if you look at the table. Mm -hmm. And so until very recently, um, that wasn't looked at again, even though it was a small number out of a small case series that wasn't randomized, wasn't controlled. Um, this, the, these statements have had this profound effect on, on um, where we've gone. And interestingly enough, a lot of this was ground earth-shaking at the time because uh, depression had focused on use of psychoanalysis, sort of in the Freud model, mm -hmm. and people that had atypical depression um, were viewed, the people that had atypical depression that were showing up to the specialty clinic in London, the St. Thomas Hospital Specialty Clinic for difficult to treat depression, um, an early version of treatment-resistant depression, I suppose, um, this, the physicians that were sending them there um, were saying things like they just had a problem they couldn't face these patients. So there was some sort of mm -hmm. hidden conflict inside of them that they just couldn't tackle. And so this was earth-shaking stuff to say, guess what, it might just be biological. Mm -hmm. Now obviously our treatments are not just biological, they are psychotherapeutic, but the idea of uh, inner conflict being the sole explanation for depression seems to be you know, waning and, and we think of these things as being uh, biopsychosocial sorts of uh, conditions and so you know the, these earth-shattering things that lead to fundamental changes in the way we think have far-reaching implications and I, I just I found this article to just be absolutely fascinating this article from Daly and West. Other comments so far? Um, about um, I would just say to reiterate um, 
Focus on your um, drugs with atypical depression. Um, SSRIs seem to be most useful, but I guess, um, no, there's a history with MAOIs and TCAs, so um, for your board exams or shelves or anything you plan on take, like step one, even that, um, know the side effects of the drugs, especially TCAs, because that's probably what they'll mostly test you on, um, and mechanism of, mechanisms of actions as well. Yeah, my, my sense is that it, along those lines, if you get a question, depending on how it's asked matters. So a first-line treatment for depression is always going to be... SSRIs and SNRIs. Yes, SSRIs and SNRIs. And if there's clearly an atypical, if you see the word atypical in the stem, has atypical symptoms of depression with increased appetite and hypersomnia, mm -hmm. and has not responded to an SSRI, what might be the next choice? And the answer in that case is going to be an MAY, I think, right? Mm -hmm. So so knowing the at least a couple of nuances, the difference between algorithmic treatment for depression, first-line treatments, mm -hmm. and understanding the treatment for atypical depression, monoamine oxidase inhibitors, I can imagine a lot of places where that would get complicated and understanding that those are two issues that kind of intersect in a weird way would be helpful. Agreed. I think also uh, it'd be important to note that this is not only uh, you know great information for your psych shelf exam, but also uh, very good information for a family medicine shelf exam too. I feel like that's one of the components that they bring in uh, psych into in, in family medicine would be you know treating anxiety and depression. This would be a, another great example of that. So. And one more thing I forgot to bring up. So with the atypical depression, always remember the mood reactivity is one of the most, or one of the major um, things that you have to have in order to have the atypical features of depression. Absolutely, and to have melancholic depression, you have to have that gone, mm -hmm. right? Completely, yes. Yeah, which is uh, absolutely fascinating to me. It's sort of like there's, in fact, it makes it hard to understand how the other specifiers fit in. Um, it, it almost feels like it should be major depressive disorder specified as either melancholic, melancholic or, or atypical. atypical. But again, I think the data on showing these as distinct entities and having durability over time is, is not where we can kind of do that yet. Mm. Yeah. Um, so high yield, I'm gonna review that very, very quickly. Atypical depression means that um, the vegetative symptoms, in other words, sleep and appetite, go up during the depressive episode and the treatment of choice for atypical depression appears to be monoamine oxidase inhibitors. First line treatment of depression for all comers is an SSRI or an SNRI. And I think those are the high yield kind of ideas in a, in a shell. And then the uh, antidepressants that are associated with the treatment of atypical depression, that is where you get into some of the very unusual uh, mechanisms of action and side effects. Watch out for the tyramine crisis. And again, Sketchy has found its way into uh, our podcast. <laughs> Yet again. Yet again. So I think those are high yield facts, right? Sketchy and the other stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Any other, uh, any other uh, last words? So uh, let's see, Rhett, any other last comments? No, I think you covered the high yields and uh, it sounds like to me, it's a fascinating idea to try and break down depression because it's such a, 
such an enormous disease. Mm -hmm. um, and this idea that maybe we can find a way to classify this in a way that'll allow us to, to pick better treatments. Um, intriguing idea. And uh, I'm excited to see if, if they are able to make progress on that. Yeah, where that goes fascinates me too. One, one of the things that was just like this one sentence in the articles that I think Angelo sent me was, hey, think about Wellbutrin. Wellbutrin is an increasing energy molecule. So, you know, maybe that fights the leaden paralysis and it does seem to have a lot more flavor. I mean, if you think about mechanism of action with it being a, a dopamine uh, molecule, maybe even working on BMAP2 like uh, we talked about some of the cathinone derivatives yeah. and uh, uh, the differences between uh, amphetamines and cocaine, right? M maybe, maybe Wellbutrin, also known as bupropion, is a good medication for that, but really no data on that, right? Yeah. It does, uh, it even possibly suppresses <coughs> appetite. Am I remembering that right? Uh, it's actually used in Smoking a combination sensation. of three different medications currently. So there's, I believe, naltrexone, uh, bupropione and maybe topiramate okay. um, as a triad of medications that are used in Contrave. Is that the medication? Mm. And Contrave is the brand name. And again, I'll probably have to put an addendum on this <laughs> podcast correcting this. But those three medications are used to uh, change appetite, yes, okay. uh, in combination. And they're used at uh, non-proprietary doses. So you either have to go to a compounding pharmacy or buy that medication at you know, high retail cost of three wow. generics. Uh, Cam. I, again, I think that it was very well studied. I think that it's it's definitely a difficult topic. So um, yeah, super helpful and, and uh, a great review. And Angelo, last word. Um, well, thank you for your comments. Um, hopefully I didn't muddy the waters for everyone trying to study for boards <laughs> or steps or level ones. Um, um, but it was a very interesting topic. I found it very interesting. Um, I spent a little bit of time going into the rabbit hole and not knowing where I came out of. But well, it was fun. Yes, it was fun. Yeah, so I, I, I hope uh, any students that are headed this way in the future that might happen to stumble up across these podcasts. Uh, I, I think Nuria, one of your classmates, said that she was going to share this with a group of students that focus on mental health concerns uh, as part of their, their passion in uh, medical school. She's going to uh, share that with the club that she's a part of. And who knows, if anybody gets, uh, you know, 54 minutes and 34 seconds into this podcast and is interested in in uh, having a podcast, hopefully their take-home messages, this ends up being a lot of fun for, for those of us that, that uh, start reading about the history of the things we're, we're talking about. Absolutely. On that note, guys, team out. Team, team out. out.